0: Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco.
1: Today, I am joined by Dr. Alan Yuginovich, who is. A medical doctor and a researcher in the Department of Neurobiology at Harvard Medical School. He also co founded the Hot Science Balloon Project and wrote the book Introduction to Sleep Medicine. So today we get to talk about a lot of different science and research and sleep medicine type topics. So, Alan, great to have you on the show. Thank
0: you very much for the invite.
1: So, first question being the first question, and it seems like you're doing a lot in different fields right now in medicine and science, and just kind of curious since uh, I don't know if it would be more appropriate to ask last season's question or this season's. Well, let's try this season's first. In your medical specialty, what are some topics or challenges that are facing residents in that specialty right now?
0: Yeah, I'll just give a quick background of my story. I'm originally from Croatia, where I was intended to do neurology residency, you know, brain-related stuff. I loved that for like years and years, like back from med school. I was always kind of in love with the kind of enigmatic nature of the brain, you know. It's incredibly complex, you know, like 85 billion neurons and stuff. And I always loved the complexity and, you know, much of it is still unknown. So I loved the challenge, basically. And then I was intended to go to my neurology residency in Croatia. But then I ended up here at Harvard Medical School, maybe temporarily, maybe not to do sleep research. So I'm going to basically talk about like sleep research, sleep resident of sleep medicine. I've been volunteering and working actually in the sleep clinic in Croatia for four to five years, so it's more or less of a residency basically. They're like unofficial residency. So you know, one of the, I think one of the main challenges with sleep medicine is it's still very under-researched. And even though we can diagnose lots of sleep problems, curing them is a whole different story and a whole, whole different challenge. And I would say neurology in general, I think neurologists can probably relate. We can diagnose a lot of stuff in neurology, but treatment-wise, it's still very, very difficult. The problem is you diagnose sleep problems, you diagnose sleep apnea, such as you know, one of the most common sleep disorders. Basically, people stop breathing during the night for several, several, several times, which is quite interesting. And then you, you kind of say, okay, I'll give you this device which basically will stop you from stopping breathing during the night but you will have to use it for the rest of your life. We most likely can not cure it. So yeah, I would say that's the primary challenge of sleep medicine.
1: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting field. I have a couple of friends and my dad have sleep apnea so they hate that machine. (laughs) They always complain about it, can't use it, but then their significant (laughs) other like has to kick them out of bed if they don't use it. Exactly. I've suffered from insomnia off and on my entire life too, so it's like everyone seems to have sleep. I don't know if you call it sleep ailments, sleep disease, sleep disabilities, but it's very very common.
0: I think a third of the American population suffers from some sort of sleep disorder. And like I think many people at least once in their life go through insomnia. Maybe because of stress, like, you know, acute stress at work, at home or somewhere. So, and interestingly enough, I think some people undervalue sleep so much. It's incredible. And then when they don't get enough sleep, then they know how important sleep is. So
1: I had to write about that in a book I came out with a couple of years ago for medical students, because there are so many sleep hacks out there. I'm like, all right, this is what the research shows. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: And but still people do it. You know, still people sleep like 4 hours a night. I mean, look, it's totally fine if you pull an all-nighter once. That, everybody did it, you know. That's totally fine. But if you do it every other day, it's not going to be great. Especially if you're doing it from a young age, you know, when you're like 40, 50, it's not going to be great for sure.
1: Yeah. Kind of another side tangent, but I'm going over the book Atomic Habits again. And that was one thing that he brought up a lot is, you know, he used to try to sleep hack a lot when he was younger and just realized his productivity went so exponentially down. So I definitely try to bring that to like students' attention. Yes, you're going to be sleep deprived a lot during medical school and residency, but to the best of your abilities, don't like force it. Don't encourage it. Try to get back into a good sleep habit. Yeah. (laughs) Even if you have more hours, if you're only working at 70% of efficiency that whole time, you're actually working backwards. So... (laughs) Sleep is so so
0: so important. I mean, I went through medical school and I also (laughs) was very sleep deprived during that period and all the other projects that that, you know my team and I did, there were nights, you know, like where I slept two, three, four hours. When I say there were nights, there were quite a lot of those nights unfortunately, primarily because of the projects we did back in Croatia, the congresses we organized and you just like have so much stuff to do. When I could, I really, really slept well when I could.
1: Well, it's kind of interesting, and I know we're going to get into more of like the science discussion in a little bit since you're heavily into research, and yeah just showed me before we hopped on the call here some interesting sleep research you're doing with mice at the moment, but yeah, that's uh, true. Before, we, <laughs> before we jump into the research side of it and kind of the scientific dialogue that we're kind of lacking right now, I did want to ask just uh, about two of your projects in particular. One of them, the book, Introduction to Sleep Medicine, seems like a, a good resource maybe for students interested in possibly exploring that specialty. Yeah, exactly. And I'm
0: finishing actually version two right now. So version two will be out hopefully soon. Yeah, the book I had, like the primary intention of the book, it's like 70, 80 page book, not like too long, is to give both like the general audience as well as medical students, medical residents, and like, you know, general physicians, The basic stuff they need to know about sleep medicine, why we sleep, like the neurobiology of sleep, why we sleep, why we need sleep, why is sleep so important, and what can actually poor sleep cause, like elevate the risk of so many disorders. And also, I go through the clinical stuff, you know, sleep apnea, insomnia, REM sleep behavior disorder, and all these other sleep disorders that are like very prevalent in the population. So I think it's a pretty good read. Yeah, if anybody wants to read the book, they can like, really email me, and I'll send them a copy for sure.
1: Awesome! I might need to make an appendix in my book for medical students. Like, yeah. here's a good resource for if you want to know why you should sleep better.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great.
1: <laughs> and then the other one is the hot science balloon project. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit about the backstory there and what you do?
0: Like a backstory to the backstory. Like I've always been active, like through med school, and I don't. Know, I'm just that, that type of guy that kind of. Doing medical school, not enough. I want more. <laughs> you know, not working at Harvard Medical School in sleep research, not enough. I want more. So basically, when I came here two months, two, three months after I came here, my team from Croatia that we did projects such as, you know, conferences with Nobel laureates, like thousand participants and so on that we did that at medical school, we wanted to do something virtually that we can gather an international community. So we founded Hot Science Balloon which is basically a virtual platform for people who are interested in science, regardless if they're medical doctors or not, like just people interested in science, where they can network, meet other people from other countries, because we organize networking events. And I think every two or three weeks we have like a networking event. And also we publish daily summaries of the latest research papers on our website, on social media, so people can, you know, Stay up to date with the latest research from all medical fields, from all biomedical fields. You know, is it like neuroscience or nephrology or something else? So, yeah. And also, yeah, we do interviews with notable scientists such as Nobel laureates and so on. And we talked before the interview that sometimes, you know, the interviews can go wrong.
1: But yeah, that's all great. Yeah. Now you learn from our little starting up this podcast process. I always have that backup ready. <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
1: All right. I think that is a very interesting project you're working on. I definitely want to check it out more. It sounds a lot mm-hmm. of fun and like there's some commonalities there with some of the topics that we probably cover in some of the medical podcasts here. Yeah. I know we had a, quite a few different topics in just sort of the scientific literature and how to communicate better with each other, with the general public, especially you know, we're seeing this whole pandemic play out and the disinformation that's happening and it seems like we're both in agreement that a lot of it has to do with just the lack of scientists and researchers to really get out there and talk speak above the talking heads so to speak
0: i agree agree
1: so what do you think is really like the importance of communicating science to the general public
0: i think that's you know one of the primary things that scientists in my ideal world would do apart from doing science in the lab and maybe you know, medical doctors who are also doing science or maybe just uh, clinical work, uh, doesn't matter. I think they should be you know, advocates for you know, objective science and quality data because nowadays, I go through the literature quite often for Hot Science Balloon and you know, other projects and you see papers and information which are just completely false or just like totally not objective. And that's horrible, at least to me, It just gets sad, sad and frustrated to see that stuff, and especially to see that stuff in mainstream media and then like millions and millions of people read that and are misinformed. Communicating science by scientists, by people who are reliable is extremely important during the pandemic. I also publish on my LinkedIn profile, as you may have seen, you know, also like summaries of research papers, like in a very objective way. And also my Facebook profile, Just for, you know, people who are interested can read through that stuff. And I try to find papers, you know, with good quality data, good quality results and conclusions which actually, you know, are supported by the results and not something, you know, very subjective. So, yeah, I also participated in one of the, like, roundtables a few weeks ago about science communication with my colleagues from Croatia. And we also all agreed that sometimes, as I think you mentioned in our texts, that the loudest people are sometimes, you know, the most heard. But scientists, I feel like scientists are sometimes very shy, at least, you know, the people I've met. And I think they should really step up and be the voices, especially during the COVID pandemic, voices of objective science communication.
1: Yeah, it seems to be the imposter syndrome is kind of going on there. Since there's such a strong correlation, the higher your education, the more you're questioning your level of knowledge and the facts that you know so I mean in that aspect it's good that scientists are knowledgeable enough to understand their limitations and to second guess some of their supposed knowledge to make sure that they're getting accurate information out there but as you mentioned like the other side is then they become a little too timid to be outspoken about it and we kind of have this double edged sword here where the most intelligent people are not speaking and the dumbest ones are speaking too much (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) And that's
1: not good. Not good, for sure. That balancing act with the Dunning-Kruger effect and imposter syndrome.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, for your listeners and, you know, for young medical residents or just medical students, I think from that age on, they should really step up and openly communicate science, participate in, you know, public lectures, round tables and so on and so on, and just get their voices heard. That's extremely important, I think, at a young age.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It seems difficult, even for medical learners. Like We have a lot of different courses on statistics, biostatistics, epidemiology, and it is so easy to misinterpret or, I guess, subjectify, if that's a word, the objective data, (laughs) give our own personal interpretation of the objective data, that even for medical doctors, it's often difficult to really know the ins and outs and see those gaps that might exist. We have blind spots to them. So if we can't see them, then it's even more difficult for the general public to see them. But I guess that's why we do need to respect experts in these fields, because they're seeing things that we can't even comprehend.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. You know, if I were to ask somebody, you know, what car would I buy? I wouldn't ask somebody who knows nothing about cars. You know, I'd ask somebody, you know, who's dealing with cars or something. If I want to know something about the COVID pandemic, I would ask, you know, some top class epidemiologists, infectologists those people and not some other person who doesn't know anything about that topic. So finding the appropriate person is so logical, but I think very difficult because people tend to believe, you know, their neighbors or something who who may not be in that field whatsoever, but may have overheard somebody somewhere talking about that topic, which is, you know, just unreliable information.
1: This episode is brought to you by findarotation.com, where students and preceptors can schedule rotations with ease and security and schedule your next clinical rotation. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. Yeah, I tell people, like, I don't ask my mechanic for medical advice and I don't ask my doctor for mechanics advice. So (laughs) go to the right source. But I suppose that's an easy. Comparison to make, but at the same time, when you're talking about such complex issues as medicine, as science, even a lot of economics and politics, it's just so convoluted, so conceptually difficult and deep that when you're only hearing the surface level arguments from whichever resource you're listening to, it's difficult to notice which ones are the experts. We just don't have the background knowledge for it.
0: (laughs) I completely understand people who you know, because also in Croatia, many scientists are. talking about the covid pandemic in different ways you said like subjectifying objective data i really don't understand why and i understand people who are not from that medical field who you know tend to believe all of those people because they don't know who's reliable and who's not i completely understand it. it's very difficult in especially in the COVID pandemic, where, you know, new info comes up every day, you know, you read Nature's Cell Science, all these journals every day, new research, which may contradict the you know yesterday's research and so on and so on. So if I were somebody who was not from the medical field, not from like the scientific field, I would try to listen to different people and not just, you know, focus on one person, what he says, that's the absolute truth, because you never know who's reliable, who's not, if you're not from the field.
1: True. And I guess that brings up another sort of side topic here is how do you be proactive with so many new studies coming out all the time? How do you determine what is accurate to get out to the public and how to do it? Because that's one thing that I hear a lot about recently is just a lot of complaints on both the left and the right politically that they don't like how the CDC has come out with new information and how they put a temporary hold on this vaccine or that vaccine and causing undue fear potentially while also trying to be You know scientifically very cautious and conservative in that aspect it's better to be conservative and raise some fears maybe than to harm the general public but then others push back saying that maybe that's not the right way to do it because the public the psychology of it the public interpretation is much different than just that initial harm it's kind of prolonged afterwards so it's just complicated topic but how are we supposed to be better on it if you take a look at different countries you know for example Germany
0: In the US, you know, Sweden, like the famous Swedish model and other countries, they behave completely different. Like I know in Croatia, the measures are not very strict, like, you know, restaurants are open and that sort of stuff. Whereas in Germany, some people tell me that you can't go to like just the normal retail store and just go buy shoes. You have to kind of make an appointment there, which I don't really understand if I'm being honest. I understand that not everybody got the vaccine, which is extremely important to get for, you know. Obvious reasons, but I don't understand that you have to make an appointment to go buy shoes. I don't understand that. Whereas a completely liberal model, like nothing is happening, we just live on life, I don't think that's the correct way either. You know, the slow and steady opening, I think, just based on the stuff that I read, is a good approach. But which country is the best or the worst, it's very difficult to say. And, you know, some people also argue about the seasonality of the virus. Is the virus seasonal? Do the lockdowns even make any sense? Studies that contradict one another, it's extremely difficult to say. I really dislike in this is that some scientists like pride themselves in being like completely right. Oh, now I'm right because the lockdowns, whatever, are working and I'm right. And you know, reveling in other people's, whether misfortune or something. That's horrible when scientists like fight each other over this, I don't think that's the way forward.
1: Yeah, it doesn't reflect positively on the field in general and just makes everyone kind of less trustworthy, I suppose, in the eyes of the public.
0: (laughs) I understand, like the health officials, they have such a difficult task at hand. And even though people are vaccinating, do you open the whole country? Do you steadily open the whole country? Do you keep the country closed? It's very difficult. I admire the people, actually, who are in these top positions because they're under so much pressure from all sorts of sides, economical side, political side all the other sides admire these people
1: yeah they're being tugged every which way and, and just broken down in half sometimes but so all right that brings up another interesting point here is even when we have relatively accurate information you know it's not always complete information it's what we know at the time that's what science is it's a constant evolution but sometimes especially those that might be less scientifically literate have trouble understanding this concept so we see a lot of distrust of misinformation being spread and people just don't trust facts anymore. They really just trust their subjective opinion more than anything, that confirmation bias. And we even see things like the backfire effects where you try to give them evidence opposing their misconceived beliefs and they'll just become stronger, more entrenched in those false beliefs. So, I mean, this is definitely an issue for scientists and psychologists who of tackle together i guess but have you noticed a lot of this in like some of your research or how do you think we can progress past this to some degree or be more effective
0: i've been to numerous like lab meetings and stuff that we do in the lab it's always interesting i don't know what the better word is one of the primary questions when you go through an article whatever is it in nature cell or any other journal the primary question is do you believe In this data that you see that in front of you, and I'm like, I hope those people who who you know did the study did it morally correct, ethically correct, and all that stuff, because you can so easily and unfortunately use the data that you want that supports your hypothesis and just ignore the other data completely and never publish it. And then I read through the article, get the information. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. I'm gonna do something similar. But that's based on something that's not complete. I understand your concern. It's my concern also, and I can hope that the editors in these journals—I really think they do the best they can in evaluating the quality of the research. But there are like, I'm a skeptic of some research that I published in you know, also high-quality journals because of the studies that we do, especially in sleep. You know, they claim something, whereas. In the real world and in the lab, I see something completely different. And then I'm questioning their research. Is this even, you know, true or not? I think that's gonna happen always in science. And science is, in my opinion, is not the quickest. It's slow and steady. I would explain it, slow and steady. And you're gonna have ups and downs like fake research and great research. I think overall it's slow and steady. The vaccine was developed incredibly quickly and I think that's an amazing breakthrough. The mRNA vaccines and stuff, I think that, you know, I think that's the future of vaccines and other stuff, not just like against infectious diseases, but other medical disorders too. It's incredible. But the slow and steady pace is, I think that we should just try to acknowledge that science is slow and steady, take numerous researches on one topic and try to make an objective conclusion, not just focus on one. Reading one and then claiming, oh, this is true or this is false is just not the way. You have to read a lot. One thing I want to say for scientists, I think it's totally okay to say three words, which are, I don't know. When somebody asks you, okay, do you know this and this? I don't know. And not try to make something up to make, you know, to look smart or something. I don't know. I'll look it up.
1: Yeah, they tell us to do that in med school when you're on rounds. Like, if you're, if you're getting pimped a question, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's better than trying to make something up and looking like an idiot. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It backfires so quickly. Just, say, I don't know. And you have to do science slowly because we're never working with 100% facts. So the quicker you release something, the least amount of research has been done. The least quality or quantity or both of facts that you're working with it's going to be less accurate. You're going to run into more issues. So being slow and steady makes sense. At the same time, here's an example I hear all the time is like Andrew Wakefield with his anti-vax BS. You know, he got the journal removed. He got his medical license removed, revoked, but people still listen to it. And I hear on one side, they're like, well, see, science is flawed because if that made it in and then others say, well, no, that proves that science is good because we're able to discover that it was incorrect, make the necessary logical corrections take that out of there and that's how science gets stronger we're always working on partial facts initially and we build over time to be hopefully more accurate so i think maybe at least for the public interest aspect of it it would be beneficial if journals released more statistical data on how many journals were unpublished or rejected due to misinformation because if you only see this one example that's all you have to work on but if you see that 10,000 other journals were also rejected this year because of factual inaccuracies. And it's like, oh, okay, they're actually catching a lot. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. Science is not 100% correct.
0: Every single field in the world has its ups and downs. Sometimes you just slip and that's completely fine, but you have to catch it. (laughs) That's the thing. You have to catch it. And God knows how many articles are out there which are actually fake. I don't know. I don't know. We'll find out. That's the slow and steady pace. We'll find out maybe in a few years. Just like Wakefield. We found it out. We found it out. But maybe there's another Wakefield looming somewhere.
1: You never know. We need to fix the reproduction crisis. Instead of focusing on new research, we need to duplicate exactly. all the past research you know, make a, sure you it's know,
0: accurate. In our, lab, in our lab, we really do, it, do stuff from the basics. I think that's very good. We, you know, we don't take anything, almost anything, for granted. You know, you read something in an article that's, that, you know, that's published 10 years ago, you don't take that for granted. If you want to continue that experiment, continuing what the article is talking about, you first replicate what they were doing to see if, if, if it stands up, if it's completely different, whoa, then, you know, something's not cool. And then you extend it. So that's, you know, also one of the aspects why science is
1: a bit, is a bit slower.
0: Or it maybe more cautious. Time. Or maybe more cautious. <laughs> that's probably the
1: word... <laughs> I think it's also along the lines of the the BS principle says that it takes infinitely more time to debunk BS than to create it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. we can create BS now, you know, you just put something on social media,
1: it goes viral, millions of people see it,
0: you you made it up in a second,
1: so especially if you're certain like politicians or celebrities <laughs> or and that stuff just goes viral. Exactly. Oh boy.
0: Millions of followers you just post something on Twitter or Instagram or wherever, everybody <laughs> sees it and it's a lie so all of a sudden it becomes a truth.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know. Well, then how about this kind of the last wrapping up question as far as the science talks go, uh, do you know any good communication tools or techniques to really improve our communication skills with each other, with the general public? I think practice makes perfect. Meaning, if you want
0: to improve your scientific communication, first of all, you have to read a lot of science that you're interested in. Secondly, you have to present that science to maybe your friends, maybe a community, maybe, you know, a high school. You know, I started giving lectures in high schools Basically, when I finished high school, I went back to high school to give lectures that get, you know that gives you confidence just speaking and and it, you, you know not only confidence but experience is extremely important. Nobody's born perfect, and nobody's you know born as a natural speaker and you know, when they're five years of age, they're incredible. You need to practice, but some people of course are more talented than others absolutely but but anybody I think anybody can achieve a good level of communication if they practice, start giving talks start creating podcasts that's also great you know just talking to people i think gives you gives you more confidence and experience so yeah also you can also try to post stuff on social media i think that's also great you'll see feedback from people and you'll try to improve on that so many ways i think
1: that's a good point yeah that is part of the reason i started a podcast too i was i'm still very introverted It's much easier for me to do something on podcast format and can edit it beforehand. (laughs) I would never say you're interested just by talking to you. You see? Yeah. It it has built over the last two and a half years of doing this, I guess. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It takes time, but
1: you know, the best investment is investment
0: in yourself. So you just investing yourself in any way, in any positive way is great.
1: Well, we've covered some really good topics here, some really deep topics and not the typical focus on residency that we usually do but i think the scientific literacy aspect is possibly more important than any residency tips we're going to give in this show anyway this is something that's going to impede every aspect of life for all time so knowing where some of the the failure points are and the current issues we're having and maybe some potential ways to improve on those on your own communication abilities and such is uh definitely going to be useful for the audience i do want to See if you have any other last-minute pros or wisdom.
0: When people ask me, especially younger people, give me some advice. I always tell them, always, 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 be proactive. So simple. So like, it, it sounds so simple, but being proactive is so difficult. And that, you know, proactive means that you're the one who's starting the change. Not that somebody's, you know grabbing you by the hand and dragging you somewhere. You're the one who needs to make the change. Being proactive is incredible. And give, also giving back to community, I think is incredibly important. If, if we all were proactive and gave back to a community, I mean, everybody, everybody wins, everybody wins. So
1: just proactivity, be proactive from a young age, you'll succeed for sure. I love it. And where can the audience find out more about you? Yeah, the audience
0: can, can visit my LinkedIn profile, which is Alan Yuginovich <laughs> or Facebook profile or just you know contact me via email or by other social media. That's all great, or visit the FalSands Balloon webpage.
1: And we'll definitely have those in the show notes so the audience can quickly and easily access them. Dr. Alan Yuginovich, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare
1: for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.